Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, Battlehawks or Bird Brains, Racist Rides, and Comedy Central's Color Conundrum. In this special TDR episode, we'll be joined by producer, former Universal and Warner Brothers development executive, and tech startup CEO David Ortiz, as we dedicate our whole show to Courage or Cringe. Is Twitter's decision to take a page out of Wikipedia to battle its moderation woes a stroke of genius or a cauldron about to bubble over? Should theme parks be held to historical accuracy in their amusement attractions? Or does fun and entertainment, by definition, require a suspension of reality? And finally, how do companies balance the needs for representation among their staff and internal decision-making with the very real dangers of potential tokenization. This and a whole host of other items on this special episode of TDR. David Ortiz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So great to see you. We were talking about, uh, he's got a very colorful hat for all the folks who uh, can't obviously see it. Got fish, a little play on the got milk. My favorite seafood place in Miami, Seafoods. Uh, uh, Garcia Seafood. Nice. If you're down in Miami, you want to go check it out. It's a legendary local spot. Yeah, it's a good spot. I don't think I've ever been there, though. I mean, there's a ton of cool places in South Florida to eat, but um, and especially seafood. That's you know kind of the the obvious uh, approach. But anyway, how you been, buddy, man? It's been a, been a while since we've uh, we've seen you. Indeed, I've been really, really well. Um, I spent the last four months in Miami filming uh, a couple of projects. And, uh, you know, we're just we're really thrilled with um, the launch. We launched our new startup uh, Click on uh, Cyber Monday 2020, which uh, about a year and a half, almost two years ago when we started this endeavor, the goal was always Cyber 20 Monday, Monday, uh, Cyber Monday 2020. So the mm-hmm. fact that we were able to hit it despite the, uh, the unfortunate circumstances that we're currently living in are pretty extraordinary, which is very grateful. It's amazing how many um, new companies, new startups, new developments happen in COVID. Um, we know of a few. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're working on it. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it before. I mean, this whole podcast was really a child of, of 2020 and having to really rethink about, you know, the ways to be able to, um, you know, connect with people and also just kind of get the messaging out. And frankly, if 2020 hadn't existed, I don't know if we would ever come up with at least this version of this of this podcast and um 
probably would have been one of those many just you know just pure interview interview sessions but, but by the way i mean to to the point of you launching click tv want to give us like the quick rundown of what it actually is and actually david if you can just like give give the folks a, a bit of a of a you know update on just you in general like you know right. i in the open we talked about you you're a producer uh, you know development exec now you've got your own company that you're starting up but a lot of people may not may not know some of your background so give us that the uh, the credentials um so we can kind of situate folks um sure and and again thank you for having me uh the irony is i feel like I've spent the, you know, 19, 20 years that I've been uh, in Los Angeles working in entertainment, um, doing my best to essentially be behind the scenes, uh, what my friends call ungoogleable, because the moment that somebody looks me up, they find the baseball player and not me. And right, right. <laughs> I've always I've always loved the anonymity of it. Um, you know, I started in the William Morris mailroom. And for me, my purpose when I first came out here was to better to get a better understanding of how to destroy certain stereotypes of people of color in the media. And in, at the agency, I found that, um, you know, they they had never I don't want to say never, but there, yeah, as far as I know, there was only one Latino agent named Jorge Pinos in music. And wow. there was there were no trainees. Um there was an assistant who was African-American by the name of Charles King, who now, of course, you know, oversees Macro and launched Macro sure. with his wife, Stacy. Um, and, and that was kind of across the board. There were a handful of um, people at different eight. Like it was almost like a one per agency type thing. And um, but there were no buyers at all. And that I found extremely frustrating because you're trying to sell content and sell concepts. But there was no one who was actually in the ear of the buyer, green lighting projects, never mind making any sort of, um, you know, giving any, any sort of opinion there. And I was very fortunate to have a mentor by the name of Donna Langley, who at the time was a VP. She had done Austin Powers at New Line. And um, I, I was able to, after leaving the agency, deciding I needed to go work for a buyer, then spend the next um, essentially seven years under her uh, tutelage, if you will, um, as a film executive, I worked at Warner Brothers where I was promoted. And then when Donna was made president, uh, she brought me back. And, and that sort of was the, the beginning of the journey where she was the executive on a movie called Chronicles of Riddick. That's where I met uh, oh, Vin yeah, I Diesel and those and those uh, Vin Diesel mm -hmm. and his sister, Samantha. And then um, we relaunched uh, Fast and the Furious 4. And um, Vin had a vision for a billion dollar multicultural franchise that would be used as a way to allow all movies of color to be used as a comp. Uh, because, you know, the typical excuse was always African-American movies don't travel. Movies with African-Americans in them don't travel. And so Vin knew that he had a strong enough international following that the movies would be able to do well. Obviously, um, when uh, DJ, when Dwayne came aboard for Fast Five, that just went to an entirely other level. level. And, yeah. um, you know, one thing that I was always excited about was when um, Bob Iger t uh, talks about Black Panther being greenlit, they looked at a series of movies in order to um, be able to greenlight the film and justify the budget, aside from the fact that obviously, you know, it was a Marvel franchise and um, the Fast and the Furious franchise was one of those movies. So That's I say all that to say I've been very fortunate to um, have been behind the scenes, understanding 
um, the importance of talent with respect to how the agencies and the studios both regarded talent very highly. Um, and I always talk about something called leverage and momentum, where you have to create little moments in order to build sure. enough momentum so that in a negotiation, you have the leverage to get the deal done. That's how things get made. There's there's part of that in the startup life as well, which we can get to, Jesus. Yeah, no, I mean, as, well, we'd love to hear a little bit about, about Click TV, right? Which is what you're actually what you launched. You want to give us like the quick the quick rundown of what it is? Absolutely. So to me, Click is the culmination of the 20 years that I was fortunate enough to have essentially infiltrated the entertainment business because we are allowing people. We have this proprietary technology that allows for the interact videos to be made interactive. And so right now, what we're seeing on Instagram has to do with photos. Our technology allows one to click our video and make the purchase of whatever product we've tagged immediately. It'll take you to Amazon. It'll take you to the actual website of the brand. And so um, we're very fortunate to just slowly build our, um, our platform to allow content creators and primarily uh, creators of color to be able to monetize their content. Yeah, that's huge. Um, I, you know, we're going to get to these uh, courage or cringe segments that are pretty juicy, and I'm very interested in hearing your perspective on all of them. But one quick thing I would say, David, about you, and we've obviously got, you know, have a history of working with you in a couple of different places, but, you know, you're, the, the thing that gives me a lot of comfort about your, your new uh, initiative with Click is that you're a person who is now a founder and a CEO who, d- who deeply understands the kind of content ecosystem. A lot of people who come into that world, are, are, are looking to kind of stick technology or some API or something on top of this kind of content ecosystem and don't really understand content and audiences and that kind of thing. So I think that's really good. And then the other thing, which you've already mentioned, is you know how central you've in your career you've been to this idea that Jesus and I are always on about, and we've talked about a few times on this show, is this idea that through something specific, you can have this kind of universal draw like Fast and Furious was. I mean, it just became kind of a a benchmark or boilerplate or whatever you want to call it for an entire, you know, sort of cinema industry. So those are two things that give me a lot of comfort that the things that you're going to be involved with and are involved with are going to succeed. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that, that really was a big part of our strategy for click because as many people are leaning into the um, subscription model, we're a free platform. We're free to download, free to watch. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to us betting on talent, talent, being able to tell their stories working with various brands, and um, those brands are going to be able to monetize their content directly because of the talent that's creating uh, the content. And then it will, essentially, it's native advertising in its purest form. Very cool. Yeah, we're going to have you, uh, in the show notes, we're going to have all the uh, the information on, on your company and how to have access to it. Cool. Thanks. Well, you know, I think the fact that you didn't call me, you call it Quibi, you're probably already ahead <laughs> of the game a little bit. <laughs> or that you're not doing the, you know, pay $7 for the free version and then $10 for the... For the right. For the I, I, I have a lot of I have a lot of really smart friends that went what over there. going on? And, um, uh, you know, I, I actually, you know, visited with them a couple of times. And um, I, I think short form, we think that short form content was was created out of necessity and now the technology allows us to create something that looks incredible. Now we're allowing them to the ability to monetize without going through, um, you know, yeah. the, the jumping through the hoops without any actual payoff. M- makes sense. So so why don't we get into it, though? Because I'm, I'm really looking forward to get into these conversations. 
Um, so quite the quite the uh, slate of things quite, to discuss. Quite the today slate. Too. So let, let's start with Twitter. If you guys are okay with that, yeah, absolutely. Great. So in an effort to increase its ability to combat uh, misinformation, right? So Twitter launched a new program called Birdwatch. Now the way this program works is that. Uh, for those that are participating as part of the program, they can basically identify tweets they believe to be misleading. Uh, the individual can then write notes to provide context to the tweet. And then other users of, of Birdwatch or members of Birdwatch can then rate the quality of that other participant's notes, right? So the eventual goal is to add a community, uh, community notes that directly, basically directly beneath tweets uh, through what Twitter calls consensus from a broad and diverse set of contributors, right? Um, now, it's a bunch of things about about this this, and, this conversation, and this largely inspired by other platforms and sites who have used similar forms of moderation, right? Or at least yeah, in some way, it's it's it relates yeah, to, it's, yeah, it's very similar to what Wikipedia does. Um, and it's interesting because this is actually pro- part of a much broader issue that we've been talking about in this podcast, and frankly, everyone's been talking about is the whole issue around uh, battling misinformation to what to the degree that you do that through actually having to censor people. So what they're finding here is a, is a mechanism to use the community itself to not just not necessarily censor, but to give more context, right? So that's sort of the first sort of starting point. Now, the company is starting with about 1,000 qualified users that they brought into the program with the hopes to expand it to about 100,000, right? Um, and Birdwatch is basically allowing users to meet uh, criteria um, that, of course, have been violated by Twitter's rules, but also represent, I think the important part here, a broad array of the platform users, right? So they really are trying to get a pretty diverse community uh, to make the type of sort of battle of misinformation be be mm-hmm. more fair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, they have been a little bit vague about how participants will be chosen, but offer that, one, Birdwatch can factor in not just the count of how many people said a, a note is helpful, but also the diversity of those inputs, which is interesting. And then additionally, they also plan to have a reputation system in which one earns reputation for contributing, uh, for contributions that people uh, from a wide range of perspective find helpful, right? So that's, it's an interesting way to actually look at it, right? So that's interesting. So so th- just to make sure I'm understanding that. So that it, that means that if, you know, whatever, however they judge, which is my big question, is however they, they define diversity and they rule f- that people have different points of view or from right. different, you know, perspectives... The, the extent to which you make a note or a comment that people from a variety of different food yeah. groups say is helpful, that actually increases your score. And, essentially, you, you can what see is. what they're doing, right? They're trying to avoid the echo chamber, right? Because right. I can make a, a basically a fact check on a, on, a, on a point. Let's say a very conservative post gets, gets put out there. Mm-hmm. I go and I fact check and I get a bunch of people that are just like me, very, very liberal, and they all agree with it, right? right. That's good. But what's even better is if across the political spectrum, people find that actual note to be helpful, right? Which, which I think is trying to encourage this to be true. Now, two two last points that I'll cover, which is when you think about this, it's already sort of been broken up into what the pros and what the cons are, right? And so some of the pros here, really quick. One is is uh, this is according to Twitter and some qualitative interviews that they did, right? They said that people value notes being in the community's voice rather than being of, of Twitter's or a central authority. They also appreciate that the notes provide a useful context to help them better understand and evaluate a tweet. Um, as opposed to just basically blocking it. Right. And the last piece is really about what Twitter is trying to do is, is really their steps towards transparency, right? One is they're saying that any data that is contributed to Birdwatch will be publicly available and downloadable. And then any algorithm that powers Birdwatch, such as the reputation and consensus mm-hmm. system, will also be publicly available, which is, that to me is one of the first times that I've heard that. I don't, I don't recall uh, other people doing that or Facebook or anyone else. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
Now, the concerns, right, and some of these are probably pretty obvious. One is there's still within this a risk of bias, right, which is already a serious problem for Wikipedia, even for the kind of people that contribute to the story, right, yeah. uh, in terms of what, what – and people still see Wikipedia as truth through community, but depends on who contributed that truth, it could still be very, very swayed. Uh, the other thing is if birdwatch communities are too homogeneous, there is a risk of coordinated attacks to suppress information. Um, I think a big one here that was brought up, which I think is really interesting, is protecting the fact checkers from bullies. Hmm. Right. Like we've all seen it in the case of President Trump when someone, as a matter of fact, when Twitter tried to do something and fact checking President Trump, how hard he can go against them. Sure. You can see it across the board, right, at a, at a sort of micro level and also at a, at a big level. And then the big, the other sort of sort of point here is it, it is kind of free labor. Right. Uh, and, and the concerns about that, not just that the fact that it's free labor, but people actually staying motivated. Meaning Twitter's not paying these moderators. They're not, yeah. right? Uh, although the whole thing about people staying motiva- motivated, there is already a lot of a lot of history to show that people love to correct each other online. Oh. So maybe there, you don't need to pay people. Yeah. People would just be very excited. But in essence, that is the broad issue of what Birdwatch is. And of course, in our, in our very first Courage or Cringe, you know, what we're, we're agreeing on here, I think, is, is whether or not this move from Twitter is a move of Courage or Cringe, of using this community focus uh, efforts to combat misinformation. And David, being that you are our guest. That's right. And it's now our tradition, our guest gets to go first. Let us know. What do you think? Is Birdwatch to you a program, Courage or Cringe? And, and, and why do you think so? So whenever I think about... Um Whenever I, I see, you know, pretty much anyone's action, I think about motive. And for me, it, com- it ultimately just comes down to, you know, what, what is Twitter's motive, right? And, and frankly, how is it going to affect their stock price? Um, you know, that's sort of the, the first thing that they think of. And so I found that, you know, just in doing some research on it, 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 it seems really interesting that, one, they would use Wikipedia as a comp, right? The Wikipedia model of, <clears throat> you know, giving the appearance that they're going to have people be able to weigh in. Um, and, and um, yeah, of course, look, there's bias in everything, right? Um, and so, but I thought that was really interesting to say, okay, well, Wikipedia is doing it. So that sort of gives right. us some justification. I actually kind of view this as a, preemptive strike against um uh 230 but the um um the techno I'm, I'm blanking the uh the technology oh, the, right uh, the, the the uh the ftc's uh the or the fcc's rather uh, fcc uh, 230 exactly the, the yeah w- right which is we've talked about on the show jesus the oh, uh, yeah. the legislation that actually protects these uh, companies as publishers and not i'm sorry as platforms and not views as, as publishers right? exactly okay. exactly right. thank you and, and so for, to me i think They've probably been playing around with this and, you know, sort of tossing this around for a while and then decided, okay, great, new administration, now's the time to be able to, because I don't know if this would have been something that they would have put out there. Um, Again, we don't need to go down the 45 route, rabbit hole, but I don't know if this would have, I'm I'm very curious if they would, and I'd love to know what you guys think, if they would have, um, how they would have adjusted this announcement if 45 had remained in office. Right. If they hadn't decided that they were going to suspend his account, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's kind of interesting, the timing of it. That's where I question motive, because I do think they're concerned about how this new administration will respond to the ruling. And then there was also something that um, I sent you guys an article um, about uh, Tim Cook's comments in the privacy conference uh, regarding Facebook last week. Sure. Where there was something, you know, really interesting there to me in terms of. 
That almost made our list, David, of courage or cringe, because I, I know that Tim Cook had some uh, choice statements, although he never named Zuckerberg, right? But he just kind of, he anonymized it, but it's like, come I, on, I we're not stupid. One, yeah. We know who you're right. talking about. Right. And, and so, so uh, to, to me... So a, lot, a lot of questions, David. A lot of questions <laughs> on motive, a lot of questions <laughs> on what happened. But, but the real question is, what do you think? Do you think is uh, courage or cringe? Well, I, I mean, I, again, for me, it's a pretty obvious cringe just because I don't see that... Uh, to me, it would have been courageous for them to have done it during the 45's administration. But instead, they waited until the tail end of it. Okay, great. Now let's get a hold of it because we feel like we're getting closer to having to deal with uh, 230. And your, but your, your cringe on it is, is really the mo- what you believe is the motive of why they do it. But in general, do, what do you think of the actual uh, program itself? Do you have concerns with with it? Like, what what are your thoughts on it as well? So, in terms of the in terms of the program itself, I I think it's it's certainly a um, an interesting placeholder. Whether or not it actually ends up, you know, coming to fruition with respect to they're starting with, I think, would you say a hundred or a thousand people, and then they right. sort of grow from there. You know, I I think it's too I think it's too early to tell, but I definitely feel, um, you know, it, yeah. it's something that they're just using as a placeholder for right now. Sure. Makes sense. Charlie. So first shot out of the barrel is a cringe, cringe. for Twitter. like it. Like yeah, it. well, David, we find ourselves in deep harmony, you and I, today, because mm. I am with you. I think this is definitely cringeworthy for a number of reasons. I actually hadn't thought about the kind of political calculus, although, look, with, any, with everything which we talk about on the show, there's some of that. So there's no question that we know from working in environments like, the, like Twitter it takes a minute to kind of put these programs together and you got to, you know, ideate them. You got to like get all the different parts and pieces. So this didn't happen from one day to the next. And even though I don't know if it says it in the article, maybe you know this about when this actually, when the development of this program actually began. Um, but my guess is it began yeah, obviously not, not, uh, you know, after uh, January 20th. Right. So my guess is it began before, be- well before then in terms of putting this together. Um, But I hadn't thought about that, so definitely thank you for bringing that up. I did think about how much of this is like distancing the moderation from central command, right? And and Facebook has done something similar with their oversight board, although a very different approach there. Very different approach, It's like a tiny group of like Mount Olympians who like basically weigh in from on high and drop hammers or not. These guys are like kind of using the, they're doing the crowdsource thing and or at least trying to. Um, uh, and, 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 description. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of how I view it. We, by the way, another one that almost made the show. We'll, we'll see. We'll, if we have bonus time, we might actually talk about it. But anyway, for me, it's cringe um, because I think it fails right out of the gate, at least to the extent that I researched it. And maybe again, Jesus, you might have more information on how we actually ensure the principal thing that makes this thing work or how we how we ensure the principal thing that makes this things work, work, which is that not everyone is going to be from the same kind of food group, that not everyone is going to agree with the same kind of thing, politically, ideology, or have the same perspective. How they actually determine that, how they ensure that is, to me, the basis by which this platform could work or could fail. And from what I read, I don't see any way that they're ensuring that kind of ideological diversity that would make for a kind of robust thing right on wikipedia it almost happened on accident in the sense that like you just kind of threw these things out and it was very early in the development of the wikipedia platform and people just kind of commented from all walks of life and whatever and it it sort of worked there here we're appending this to a very already existing mature people know how they behave we know who the active twitterers are people who tweet constantly 
So, like, I just find it very difficult when they when they give these vague things about we picked a thousand people and they're qualified in some way. What are those qualifications? How do we know that we're not getting a thousand people who you know maybe from different parts of the world, like the Facebook group is, but may ideologically be very very similar, and therefore we're sort of you know um, uh, whatever enforcing or solidifying some orthodoxies that may not really be representative of a free marketplace of ideas. So for me, that's the biggest reason why this fails. I think, again, the fun about this segment is you have to choose mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot of things that are noble about it. I really do. First of all, I think they're trying to do something, right? But I think the execution of it falls apart because step one is unclear and they haven't taken it as seriously enough uh, if this is their announcement. And then the, sec- the, the quick last thing I would say, just very quickly before I turn the mic over, is that um, I think it would have been a worthwhile thing for them to have considered not developing this in-house. I think it would have been interesting for them to say, you know what, we take this so seriously, we're going to hire a firm and we're going to treat them like we hire these law firms that do these sort of like investigations whenever there's a scandal inside my company. They're going to come back to us with what their idea is on how to do this and we're going to implement whatever that is. But like they design this and it's the same people that a lot of folks have concerns about if you're on the right side of the spectrum that you're being sort of overly sensorial and if you're on the left side of the spectrum that you're being you're not curating enough right so it's the same folks that are putting this together and i think that's also a reason why it fails all right so we How's have that? too too cringe so right from the get go i completely disagree with both of you all right we'll i am it. uh and i always say i don't completely disagree i take that back because I sort of looked at this through a different lens, right? So starting with David's point in terms of the, the reasons being questionable, I, I agree. But I also put that against any of these social platforms. The reason for doing anything is always going to be questionable because if given the choice, they're not doing any of this stuff, right? They don't want to have to do anything to drop engagement in any way whatsoever. Yeah. Having more controversy, having people be able to go on there and pick fights with each other is just better for the platform. There's more time spent on the platform. Therefore, I've, you know, if given the choice, I'm sure they wouldn't want to do any of it, right? So that's why while I, I don't disagree with David's point, I just I didn't see necessarily through this lens. And the lens that really I'm viewing this, maybe more to, to your point, Charlie, is that while I could see the concerns in terms of, because that was immediately my first question, well, who are these qualified users? But then I think about, well, what's the alternative? Right. That, that's the problem. Right. What is the alternative? Because the alternative to you, the comment you made, you made earlier mm-hmm. of Mount Olympus coming down and making a judgment. Well, that is what it what basically turns out to be whenever you let the platform themselves be able to dictate. You know, not too long ago, we were talking about, you know, when Twitter took the first moves of actually censoring or putting notifications on some of President Trump's or, you know, some of his tweets. That is Mount Olympus coming in and saying, hey, we're going to specifically put our thumbs on this thing and do this in a manner because we don't disagree, we disagree with, with what's being said. So that is happening. And that's, of course, you know, part of the way that, that, that has been done. So this feels at least more equitable to me in the sense of if you have the right process, and that's a big if, of course, or having the right kind of qualified users, it does feel like a more robust system for doing what I think we all probably would rather have is look that your two options are either a censor or give more context. There's only, only two options, mm-hmm. right? And if choosing context versus censorship, then I, I think that's a better move because the, frankly, what they're trying to battle is misinformation. Well, but the other the right way to do is simply yeah. not have it. Right. Right. When someone goes out there and just plainly lies, sure. the right way to do it would be basically just take it off. But going back to David's point on two thirty, it could another option just be phone company. Like, this is a platform. In other words, like, could that be another third option? You just said censor. Wait, what'd you say? You said you could censor, censor it or context. Or give context, yeah. Right. Could, could another option just be 
you know, it's it's a phone, it's the phone company, it's a platform, and yeah, but unless I, it's illegal, I, I unless frankly it's, think it's a it's a terrible example. Like I, I actually thought about this a lot, and people keep on making that comment, like, oh, mm-hmm. this is just like electricity. It's not, and the reason why it's not because these companies are built to drive engagement. Mm-hmm. You really have to completely change what the platform actually is, right? Because the problem is that if I put up a false piece of information that can spark conversation. That gets it. It lights up, and it's going to get a lot more. It's, there is no scenario where they have literally nothing to do with what happens on, on the platform, unless you you completely take away engagement, you complete you completely take away any kind of promotion of any kind of tweet or any kind of content. So everything is the exact same kind of viewership. So if you have a thousand viewers and only a, you know ten percent of your viewers ever see that, that's a crossbar for everyone. So you literally have to change the mechanics of what the platform is for it to be the case. So I'm going under under the premise that the platform is are going to continue to be built around driving engagement. And if that's the case, then you have to find a way to either censor or give more context. And I like the fact that at least they're going to, listen, rather than trying to censor, maybe the better way is just give people more information so when they're seeing this, they at least get other perspectives, Mm -hmm. right? And if you want to take away the Mount Olympus being the one that does it, meaning the company, then having a subset of your users now to the degree that you have the right kind of qualified users and as that qualified user base gets bigger, then maybe you do have. I think one point that I really liked in terms of what they what they talked about is that they're making their algorithms public, and especially in terms of how they're ranking people's comments on it, right? Mm-hmm. And having this this tie to when people from different political views all find it helpful. How, they determine, essence, how do they determine that? Just it's super easy. Who do you follow? If you and I look at our own Facebook or Twitter feed, we can figure out like really quickly mm-hmm. whether or not we're on the left or the right. Mm-hmm. It's super easy, mm-hmm. right? What we like, what we engage with, what we follow. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I think it's extremely easy to figure out, at least from that perspective, like people that are, maybe the people in the middle that are maybe go both ways is harder, right? But sure. the, we, we, the, the farther out you go, the easier it will be, in my mind, to be able to know whether someone falls on one side or the other. And I think those combination of things to me are good ways to try to address it. My biggest concern, frankly, with this model or what they're trying to do is the issue around how you're going to protect, protect bullying because that is a real concern, especially because the comments people make are public. Yeah. And I could totally see that someone gets all of a sudden fact-checked and they don't like it and you get all of my little minions to go after that person and get, you know make a living hell. That is probably, to me, the biggest question. I actually think it's a bigger problem for them to try to solve for than, than, than anything else that they, that they listed on here. But that's basically the reason why I'm looking at the merits of what they're trying to do. And when I think I'll relative to the alternative, I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a better system for that reason. David Jesus always does this. He gives the courage or cringe based on the intent. You know that I mean? is not true. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, look, I have to say the, um, intent is one of the, I think I mentioned to this to you guys before we even got started. Intent is so critical to so many, like, sure. you know, if sure. you make a mistake, hey, you made a mistake. If you intended to do someone wrong, it, then, you know, that to me is, you know, right? um, right? yeah. that's so different, so different. Um, again, when I, when I think about motive, I think it's really, I, I think that's a, that's a very fair point. And, um, Charlie, do you think that they tried to do something internally first? They just didn't talk about it. Um, I mean, I just think they they've been you know they've been getting hammered on pretty aggressively for the last several years on on all sides of this issue. Right on one side, it's there's not enough moderation. We've got things that are hateful. We've got things that are racist. We've got things that are dangerous. And you guys aren't doing enough. And then on the other side of that spectrum, and I'm not saying these are people. This is a spectrum of where people can have multiple points on the same spectrum. But on the other side of that spectrum of moderation is people thinking like, hey, you're just being, 
you're being too heavy handed. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm, I need to be able to express an unpopular opinion. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the things of being an American that we perhaps take for granted. So I think that this is something they've been talking about for a long time. So it follows to me that they didn't just kind of cook this up in five minutes, right? We also just know how much is involved in it. So I do think that they've been at it for a long time. Um, I don't know how long, but it's, it's, it's been a minute. What was interesting when we look at the actual examples is I'm already seeing a number of examples from the left complaining about this, mm-hmm. that they're being picked on. There was some stuff from AOC that she put it out and immediately, and especially related to Ted Cruz and her comments that basically Ted Cruz tried to have her killed. Mm-hmm. And there's already all this fact checking around the, the, those comments, right? right? And the left using it as a look, see, like they're using this basically to, to try to shut us down. So in some ways, I actually think if you see more of that, because I know the right is going to complain about it. You see the left company. Look, at both sides, what we said before, in any kind of negotiation, if both sides are slightly unhappy, there's probably a good probably agreement. A good thing. Yeah. So that to me, I'm using a little bit as a, as a gauge if people are super unhappy. I think it's a lot of work to be done, and it, I think people are going to be pretty unhappy with this. But the only way it gets better is if they start making more clear what those what those qualifications for the users are and then getting a lot more of, of them in there. I think the bigger that it is, the more likely it is to have a more balanced approach for how you do actual fact-checking. But I like the intent of actually giving context rather than just completely sure. taking it off. Sure, That makes sense. Okay, cool. So we're um, we're in the majority now, Jesus, but yes. we'll see what the, how so the tables may evolve and turn. Let's see if I could, if I could convince uh, David on this one. Let's see. Let's see which side he's on on this one. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about our next topic, uh, Disneyland, updating uh, racist, right? Maybe? Question mark? Uh, so the Jungle Cruise, a ride which was an opening day attraction at Disneyland, in 1955 and was partly inspired by the film The African Queen is now being uh, renovated in both the California and Florida locations, right? So on the ride, just for those of you that may not be familiar, which maybe everyone is, but I know, uh, guests basically board uh, boats captained by skippers with who humorously narrate their journey through their famous rivers from around the world, right? Now, along the way, guests pass by these animatronic uh, depictions of animals and native people from Africa, Asia, and South America, right? Now, this ride has actually gotten quite a bit of criticism over the years um, as people feel that the depictions of Native people were racist and based on harmful and outdated stereotypes as being basically violent and literally having a headhunter, which is (laughs) one of the last things you see. Um, Now, the renovation will not include any references to the new films, the new film being being released with, we're talking about DJ earlier, or uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. It's a new film um, by, by the same name that is coming out, I guess, this year. Um, but it, it will not have any references to that, uh, but it is meant to address uh, how Native people are and their culture are represented, right? Now, this is part of a broader trend by Disney in updating rides, uh, especially as cultural norms uh, change, right? So last year, they announced that Splash Mountain will be rethemed with characters from the film The Princess and the Frog. Uh, currently, it features characters and storyline from the 1946 film Song of the so- Song of the South, which you know has long been criticized criticized for its racist depiction of black people. Also, Pirates of the Caribbean a while back was also updated. Um, I remember that a scene where women were being auctioned off was was removed. Um, and in the nineties, the Hall of Presidents was also updated to include discussions of the history of slavery in the U.S. Right, so this is part of a theme that Disney every so often does. Um, and they decided that Jungle Cruise is the new one that they wanted. By the place. way, the, the remodels seem to coincide eerily with uh, the launch of new movies. There may be a marketing angle, David, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, sure. that may be a part of this calculus. 
part of, part of the calculus. So uh, so yeah, so courage or cringe on Disney uh, updating uh, the ride. Well, by the way, just to, uh, to ask David, uh, uh, when was the first time you can remember riding any you know the uh, Jungle Jungle Cruise? I am probably 2007. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Really? Okay. Because I, I think... We didn't... Ahead. Yeah, because I grew up in New York. I didn't, right. I didn't go there until um, an ex-girlfriend dragged me to Disneyland with <laughs> um, two little... She had two uh, younger brother and sister. So, I, yeah, I didn't go there until I was an adult. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I have mm-hmm. to say, I was mortified. About the ride? Oh yeah. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell oh, me. Oh, that case you have to start. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. no. Yeah. We'll just, no, just tell me about the mortification. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll have Jesus or me start, uh, but just, go, but go ahead. What's the mortification? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's everything that, um, you know, that you guys were talking about in terms of like, here's the thing. I'm not the person who files a complaint. You know, right. to me that doesn't affect change. Anytime right. that there's ever been someone who, and again, nothing against the people that that do. Um, but I remember, you know, going on the ride and just thinking, this is, this is where I have a bump or a real beef, I should say, with respect to, you know, stereotypes and, and how people of color are portrayed, right? And at the end of the day, I know that, you know, my ancestors um, come from a, a different territories, right? Um, but I looked at it and I just thought, wow, this is where... You know, um, some people come from, you know, from the middle of the heartland. And so this is, you know, there, there are people that have never met an African-American who come to Disneyland because there's no African-Americans in their town in whatever state in the Midwest or what have you that you want to mention. And so in their mind, the only um, interaction that they have with a person of color has to do with whatever they see on TV or, you know, obviously now the internet at the time, it wasn't even, it was almost like still relatively new. And then, you know, rides like this. And so I just thought the portrayal was just like horrifying, to be honest. Nice. I think I have a sense of where you might net out on this one, David. Um, but Jesus, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Um, yeah, for me in this story, um, in terms of uh, putting courage or cringe for Disneyland doing this, I guess I would say in the decision to do it, I put it as courage. Um, it's kind of cringe that it took this long, frankly, to, to get to get it done. But I do think that making the actual update to the ride, I do think is, is courageous or better yet, the right thing to do. I don't know if I put it courage because it's, it's harder to call them courageous when it's a ride that's been around for that long. And it's interesting because my my sort of experience with the Jungle uh, Cruise is one where I have a lot of very fond memories as a kid going to Disneyland as a little, little kid and continue to go because, you know, born and raised in, in, in California. So got a chance to go to Disneyland a lot. And I always kind of, it was one of those rides that we would always do, always a lot of fun. I thought it was great. I never had that, especially as a child and probably even like so much, much later, it never really bothered me or I never even thought about the sort of stereotypes that were being portrayed on there, right? And for a long time, I didn't, right? I would see it and just it didn't really register. It was like, oh, kind of like this magical thing that you would go on, you know. Forget the fact that the references feel like, you know, from colonial times, right, of, of, uh, of exploring. Right? You forget all that stuff because I just didn't think about it. Now, where, where, where I think it starts to come to mind to me is more from my experience of being um, uh, married to a, a woman that is from Africa, right? My ex-wife is from Africa, from Kenya, 
and hearing her talk about her experience of people asking her about Kenya or the fact that they don't recognize the country that it, it, like it's all Africa, right? Like think of, of Africa as still still many people think of it as a as a country, not a, not a continent. Um, and then being asked questions such as, you know, do you even have houses where you live? Like, the, like, is it all huts? Like, and people are like seriously asking questions, mm-hmm. right? Like, is it just like a bunch of lions walking around everywhere? Right? I'm like, no, no. This is actually one of the biggest hubs um, in the in the continent. Of course, you know, the two biggest you know hubs are going to be South Africa and Kenya. Um, a lot of international communities that, are, that that live there, but it's like this all these really negative perceptions, and I can't. You know, it's hard to deny that there is some connection between how some of these films have some of these entertainment options have and actually influences how we all think about these other, you know, these people that maybe some for some of us, we don't have that kind of connection unless you're someone like me that actually has direct connections, you know, to them. So it's not just African-American, but I think when you start going beyond that and think about people that actually are from those countries, um, you know, for I think for many people, they still have that kind of perception. And these things do matter. And I think maybe the reason why I also feel that is the right thing to do is like, look, times change, but perception of what norm was and what we were all okay with in terms of level of racism that that was just prominent in, in everyday mainstream media has changed quite a bit. And I have no issue when those things actually get updated, right? Like right now, if I had my daughter watch Tom and Jerry, it would be a massive cringe for me to see her see all these like African-American characters that show up that are obviously just to help. Right. And you see him kind of come in and the level of racism that showed up in those kind of cartoons from like the 50s. Right. So I have a big problem with her seeing some of this and even some of the stuff that on Disney Plus. I like the fact that they've actually put disclaimers, even though they say, hey, this is what from the, it's time. Just, yeah. so you know, mm-hmm. but it's a disclaimer. And I, and I get the point there. There it's harder to completely change it because I think that's a little bit difficult. But in the case where it's a a new ride, a new experience for for kids this day and age. I like the fact that this will get changed. I think it'll be a very positive thing. I think my daughter, who's half black, will, will see this as a as a positive thing when she sees it, and will not have any kind of negative association. That maybe I may have a little bit because of just reminiscing from my times of growing up and the sort of yeah what it meant to me as a kid seeing this and how I saw it from a very different lens, but mostly because I wasn't impacted by it. Very good, um, David. Why don't, why don't we uh we'll, we'll anything to add to that? I think, like I said, I think I I know where you're you'll net out, but just to officially make the designation, Jesus is a hard cringe. What about you? Um, I, I, you know what, I, I'm going to, sorry, hard courage, hard courage. courage. Sorry, courage, sorry, courage. sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah no, I, um, I'm going to use the, the, uh, t- the template, if you will, that, that, uh, you <laughs> talked about earlier with respect to, um, intent yeah. and, and, um, again, in my mind, I always think about like, okay, what were the conversations behind the scenes? Right. And, and all the different, um, uh, decision makers, right? And, and that's, I think, that's sort of the, the beauty of the power of what technology is doing for us now. Technology has not only allowed for um, everyone to see, you know, body cameras, right? And, and video cameras, and, and it started almost like with Rodney King, but now we're seeing the injustices that occur in society. Now we're seeing through a different lens, our perspective um, mm-hmm. is changing and evolving, and so if I think about intent and I think about 50-50, you know, yes, there is certainly the financial ramifications of, um, hey, we're going to change the ride or we're going to update the ride. Are we going, you know, how is that going to affect the, the people that have been coming to the ride, right? Like there are probably a group of people that have been going to this ride for so. years and years that don't want it to change. 
you know, they they get a kick out of, you know, whatever this is. I actually would lean towards um, believing that it, the, I would I would vote courage. I, mm-hmm. I would vote courage that you're real recognizing that the times, you know, when this ride was created, um, it was wrong. And, and, and people are kind of opening their eyes up to it now. And again, in, in my mind, the scenario is um, then this is a total fictional story, meaning in my sure. mind, I sure. think there's a world in which Dwayne may have gotten on that ride with his kid, with his daughter. Mm-hmm. And they would have talked to him about, and, and I think um, uh, the director, I can't remember, I think it's, uh, I have to look it up. I think it's uh, Jaume, J-A-U-M-E, who did Amelie, uh, who directed mm-hmm. the movie. And I wouldn't be surprised if DJ had a conversation with someone at Disney and said, listen, I'll do this movie, but that ride needs to be updated. You know, and by the way, I'm making that up as, you know, as right. A, right. You can but totally like, see that, though. Yeah, you can to- I can sounds, I can, you can totally one... see that. David, David, on this show, if it sounds awesome, we say it anyway. And by the way, as someone who spent um, seven years employed at NBC Universal, I can tell you it takes years to update and make a ride and do all that stuff. And, you know, they're constantly running scenarios in terms sure. of logistically and how long is the ride going to go down and what other rides are being updated. And so I know the movie was actually pushed because of the pandemic, but um, I would not be surprised if that was a part of the conversation where even if it's a selling tool to DJ and his camp to say, by the way, we're updating the ride and we've learned or realized the culture and sensitivities, this is what's happening. And, And that, I think that was probably part of the I would assume that, that I would I just part of the in calculus, my head think yeah. that that's part of the that was a sell for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I see that. I agree with that. So we got two courages. Um I think I agree with you that it takes years to update the rides. I spent six years at Disney working there, and I and and uh, I know that that's true. It also though, David, takes years to get a movie produced in certain cases. Um, especially when you're Disney and you kind of slot these things in from a pretty distant, you know, pretty far away horizon. So I think ultimately the reason I come down uh, contrarian to you gentlemen on the cringe, which is where I net out, is because I see that there's some opportunism here in this, in kind of getting the 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 sort of mantle of I'm doing this to be more sensitive. I believe that so, that somehow that's that there are people who are doing it for that. I don't think that they're they have malicious intent, but I think there's more about the marketing of this movie and this change than there is some kind of like stepping out to take a really strong um kind of writing the wrongs of history position. I I just I'm far more right. You're very it, skeptical about the intent. Well, I'm just far more realistic about having worked at Disney how the way some of these marketing things work. <laughs> I think it's like perfectly logical they've got Jungle Cruise coming out. It got sure. you know that they're going to want to update the ride. It makes perfect sense what they did with Pirates. It all everything is about kind of re-expressing this IP in a variety of different ways. So I think this was something that was coming anyway. And I don't think it's like we suddenly figured it out. Because to your point, 1955, 2020, that's a long time. <laughs> And we've been getting yeah. a lot of complaints about this, right? Presumably, according to the piece. So that's reason number one why I come down on on cringe. The second thing is that you know, 
um, I have a lot of also fond memories with this ride as well. It's one of the very earliest rides I remember taking. I remember this and Pirates, like I, just the, the way that things yeah, those smelled. Yeah, iconic one. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like the way things smelled and you got a little bit wet on the ride and you got scared from the alligator that popped up and all this other stuff. And so I, I think that there's some obligation that we also have in, in these kind of, you know, American, uh, you know, iconic experiences like Disney to maintain some things that are nostalgic, right? If 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 the degree to which they are wrong or stereotypical is not overwhelming and i don't see it's overwhelming in this case in fact the same the the same reason that i would say that you know there's stereotypes about you know uh people from a tribe or whatever the headhunter thing that may be a stereotype but you know let's be clear there are actually indigenous cultures that you know from a lot of places africa south america who have similar looks and feel similar you know weaponry that kind of stuff at least historically so it's not like it's a whole cloth invention right and then but i have to say just on the stereotype on the stereotypical argument that then the stereotype has to apply to the people who are the, the like running the boats too so everybody who's not aboriginal or indigenous is gun toting um, uh, uh, you know, um, right. uh, colonizer, everyone, right? So if, if you know, because I have uh, mixed children and I have a black granddaughter, they, you know, they would be viewing, and I have white kids as well and nieces and nephews and all that stuff. What I wouldn't want is for, uh, you know, those those kids to have, like the, the stereotype needs to apply, in my opinion, in, in all directions, right? This thing is 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 over the top. It's fictitious. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, that's part of the the sort of fun and charm of it is it's kind of ridiculous, right? Not everybody who is not indigenous or black is a colonizing, gun-toting lunatic shooting things out of a boat, right? right. And not everyone who is not that is sitting there with, you know, in a jungle hut or whatever it is. So I just put it much more in the realm of fantasy. And I don't – and the one point that I guess I would just end with is that I think it's dangerous – for us to abdicate our kind of parenting responsibility as it relates to kids to expect that like a ride should educate where we are the parents, you know, at least as it relates to kids, I would talk to my kids, right? I would say, Hey, look, you know, to the extent that they, that, that there was something again, overt, and I don't see it in this case, but if there was something overt, I would educate and I would say, here's exactly why you need to look at this in a particular way. Um, and I feel that if we're expecting for rides and amusement parks and media companies to do all this for, I think that that kind of leads us to some of the challenges we've been seeing. That's 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 my that's my thought. So I think the historical accuracy thing is a slippery slope. It's not worth pursuing on these kind of rides um, across the board. Again, unless it's egregious, and I just don't see it as egregious. So ultimately, though I hate to disagree with eloquent gentlemen such as yourselves, I come down <laughs> on cringe for yeah, this one. I, I think the. The, how egregious it is, I think it literally is in the eye of the beholder, right? Sure. So that is, is a case where, depending on who you are, you may find it like really offensive or, or not. Um, you know, your point about not letting it or not leaving it up to these media companies or, or companies, entertainment companies in general to be the ones that do the parenting. I, I agree with you, but at the same time, I mean, when your core constituent is kids and families, and to the, so by the way, I agree with, with both of you in the sense that I definitely think there's other reasons why they're doing this. And it is very much tied to the film. And the second the film comes out, it's a lot more attention to this ride. So I don't necessarily think that their reasons for doing this is very courageous or that they're of pure of heart. They're not, right? This is a company, right? But I also think part of it is also understanding that now you're talking about having to cater to kids and younger families who have a different value system than maybe what they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. 
And yeah, those norms change, right? Mm-hmm. And and while I understand the whole idea of keeping the the sort of the traditional part of this, and frankly, even for me, like where I definitely can understand why someone would be offended by it, I still have it's like I have very mixed feelings because I do have very good memories sure. of that in the two rides that you mentioned. Maybe and the it's third a small world too. The third one, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say. Was gonna say this. And those to me, for me, were like the first time where I remember that I can remember seeing what an immersive experience really felt like. Really, really meant to be transported to a whole other world. Yeah. And those three examples, of those rides, right? Pirates of the Caribbean, Jungle Cruise, and it's a small world. And the small world is, is almost like to the you can barely say that because that one is so different and mm-hmm. it's not realistic at all. Whether mm-hmm. you two are, even though you know you're in fantasy, right. but you feel yourself kind of immersed in that. Uh, I could see people having a very sort of close tie into it and not wanting to see those things change. But I also think as as companies and as as timing evolves, you know, in the same way that for entertainment, you know, uh, animation, et cetera, things co- constantly being created now for sure. kids is sure. just different than what it was, you know, historically. And sure. it has to be. I think, I so think, from that standpoint, mm-hmm. like, that's why I, I think it's the right thing to do for that reason. D- David, do you think, you know, the other thing that I was going to mention is, do you think some of this has also to do with perspective of having seen sort of what pers- what part of the world you've actually experienced? And, and my point is, you know, by the time I, I rode that ride for the first time, you know, I'd been to a number of different places in the world, right? And uh, obviously now as an adult with my kids, I visited Africa, both like places that are metropolitan and also places that are in the middle of the sticks, right? I've been to a number of countries in South America. I've, 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 I've engaged with indigenous peoples, right? I, I, I'm like, I've done all these things. And so when I see these one example of that, I know that that's true. That happened at some point in history. I don't automatically attach that to everything that that culture has to offer, right? So therefore, the stereotype yeah. thing maybe doesn't ring as clearly for sure. me. But yeah, a just pretty wonder- broad, like global perspective. Well, I'm just right? wondering, you know, maybe what you know. I don't know, David, if you, what you think about that. But like, h- how much of like what we actually bring to the table in our own past kind of colors or taints these kind of things, right? Because obviously I'm offended by things that are racist and I'm offended by people being, you know, by people being depicted in ways that are too one note. But like, that's not what I see when I see some depiction of something in African culture. I don't just attach that to everything that Africa has to offer because I've been there and I've seen it. I've seen the cities and I've seen the huts. I've seen both, right? So like, I don't know, just... I I, I mean, I'm going to make a statement that it can definitely be taken out of context, but perfect, perfect I, I, for the show. Perfect, perfect. go. <laughs> perfect, more but controversial the better. I, I, I think, now, go. <laughs> I think if if we've all learned, hopefully we've all, in just my humble opinion, I think if we've all learned something in the last, let's say, you know, twelve months or or what have you, and it's something that I, that I, you know, unfortunately have realized is that everybody is a little racist, and some mm-hmm. are more racist than others. Some people are a lot racist, right? But, but you know, um, a lot of people have grown up in a world in which they do judge by color or they do judge by their perspective. And, and um, I've been, uh, I'll just share like a, a funny anecdote where the other day I was running through Sherman Oaks where um, yeah, I've been spending some time and there was a woman in her car who locked her door as I ran by and I heard the lock. And I haven't heard that lock in a long time. Mm. And then as I ran a little bit further, someone crossed the street. And now it's acceptable to cross the street because we're all wearing masks and we're dealing with the the pandemic. But people have been crossing the street my entire life. Mm -hmm. Every time I was in school, 
they saw me and they just thought, and by the way, and I'm in a certain tie because I'm going to prep school in, Man- in Manhattan on a, you know, and through the, and, but they see me and they, they're immediately thinking, here comes trouble. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm not trouble. I'm the furthest thing from trouble in terms of like, I've never robbed anybody. But mm-hmm. I think everybody has the, just that, you know, and I'm not saying everybody is, um, is afraid, right? I'm, all I'm saying is like, I think that there's something really powerful in the moment that we're having with respect to um, people's minds being opened up. And we've had a, the moment to kind of pause and realize, wow, we've been steadily moving along here, accepting everything as the status quo, because the world should have changed after, um, you know, Rodney King, for example, right? After that first immediate um, example of police brutality. And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 again, I only cite that because we've seen how it, it, it's only unfortunately gotten worse. And, 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 and I only say worse because we don't know about the various injustices that happened that we've heard of, but that we never got to see, right? We never, there's no video of, of what happened. Um, and, and so I just feel like the fact that there is this effort, you're right, you guys are both right in that. And I think we all agree there was certainly this, you know, motive to change because they know that there would have been backlash, right? And it needed to be updated and they're recognizing, Hey, you know what? There's probably a more intelligent way to tell this story. And that's the beauty of storytelling. That's why that's the beauty of of content creators being allowed to um, be afforded the opportunity to, to tell the story the right way. I do want to very quickly, I know we need to move on, but I just want to correct my own mistake um, the director of um, Amelie is Jean-Pierre Jonet, and the director of Jungle Cruise is Jean-Colet Seurat, um, who's also doing Black Adam for um, with D, with Dwayne and uh, did The Rock. So I never want to give the wrong movie the wrong cre- the wrong movie the wrong credit. I think in that case it's acceptable. I, you know, I, I would have I would have definitely made the same mistake too with uh, with with those uh, with those directors and, and those particular names. But no, well, well. Uh, I was going to say we, we could have just let the bird watch, uh, you know, fact check. Yeah, the context. Uh, <laughs> give context to the yeah. statement and correct that. So I don't know I don't know why you're worried about fact checking yourself, but. <laughs> so great, great topic. But so so far we haven't got one what we all agree on. Well, but at least I, I know that uh, David is malleable and can come over to different you know different yeah, yeah, sides yeah, of a yeah. moment. But you know we'll invite him again. I'm, I'm one for one with Ayo right now. He's agreed with me once and disagreed with me once. So let, let's let's see if we can we can land this last one. Um, so black Comedy Central employees, um, you know, felt tokenized and used as a taste testers for racism by the network while it showcased uh, diversity on TV. So this is actually a Business Insider exclusive report that was put out uh, a few days ago, maybe last week. Um, and it was a, a lot to unpack on this one, uh, a lot of examples of some of the concerns that, that they basically had. And what they did is they interviewed a bunch of, of ex-employees uh, uh, for Comedy Center, specifically black employees, and they gave a bunch of different examples of ways that they felt they were being tokenized, right? Um, and specifically, I think employees of the creative team say they were unnecessarily pulled into meetings to showcase diversity. Hmm. Some say that they were expected to provide the black perspective, in, in quotes, for their white colleagues. And, you know, a big part of this, this obviously, this piece about the call for Comedy Central to make the company as diverse as its content, right? And that's probably a good place to start with, with this story, which is... You know, when you think about Comedy Central, this is a network that has been pretty progressive in, t- in terms of the content, in terms of all, even featuring diverse talent, right? And probably, to me, kind of top of the list is, some, is a show like The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, 
um, as being obviously hosted by uh, um, um, actually Trevor Noah is from South Africa, right? Um, and and it's one of many of examples of the type of shows that they put in Comedy Central, right? Throughout the two thousands, for example, they released some of the you know some of the most controversial and, and widely watched shows, such as the Chappelle Show and Reno Nine One One. And, and the, really the appeal of the network has been, one, uh, rooted in unfiltered tone paired with a lot of racially diverse cast of comedians. But that all that progressiveness in the content, right, hasn't really necessarily reflected internally, right? So former employees say that top creative executives at, at the New York headquarters uh, sometimes tokenize the employees of color and fostered a culture rampant of microtransgression or microaggressions, right? So there was a bunch of examples included. I'll only cover a couple of them. We can go back and pull some more in. There was one, for example, about a Viacom VP being irritated. They were being asked to post content related to the death of Kobe Bryant and saying, and I quote, you know, why the F will we do that? Isn't that BT's job, right? Not later on, that VP denied ever making that statement. Yikes. <laughs> Many Who does more. that? Where are these people exactly. that do that? That yeah, one's uh, that's a... That's a <laughs> Kobe Bryant, really? If you're going to pick one? like Kobe Bryant? Why would we be uh, interested in that guy? Uh, Many were also called upon when executives needed a non-white face in the room, right? So a former design coordinator who was black recalled being asked to appear in a 2018 internal video promoting Comedy Central's culture clubs. And the voice she was pulling was was hilarious, right? She was pulling by the creative director as she was walking by, who didn't even know what her name was, simply to have a little bit, you know, better shades of color (laughs) in, in in the piece. Uh, others were periodically pulled into meetings to create the illusion of diversity, right, uh, in front of comedians of color. So that was actually one of the interesting comments that they brought up um, to, in, in essence, to ask to to provide that black perspective, right? So it, the VP of Brand Creative pulled in a black project manager into a meeting with Phoebe Robinson, who was a black comedian. It was a project that she was not working on, right? And and just to have someone of, of color in there. Mm-hmm. There was other like transgression where they talked about even having some senior VPs asking black employees to travel to LA, an employee who was not part of the project, well, not even the right role, by the way, it was a writer instead of a designer, just to avoid having a room full of white people, right? Um, And then also, uh, um, so basically a bunch of examples like that. Others being like asked to be the taste tester for racism. Mm -hmm. I think there was one example they were talked about a specific show that they were working on called The New Negroes. Uh, which already with the title, you know, it's going to be a little bit of controversy there. And mm-hmm. uh, producers and creative directors constantly asking or dropping by the desk of this one individual person if the title was offensive. And, you know, her response was like, no, but you're making it offensive by cringing your face whenever you say it, right? Yeah. Um, but across the board, a lot of sort of lack of diversity and, and some a lot of these in the different examples, right? Um, and, you know, one of the quotes that sort of stood out to me is what a former coordinator said. Look, on the outside, Comedy Central had built this image of diversity by including more black and, pe- and people of color content. But internally, they neglected to do exactly that. And that's, was, that's where the real change needs to start. Now, Comedy Central representative did say is that basically they didn't comment much other than saying that we take uh, these allegations very seriously and are investing in them. Our commitment is to ensure an inclusive, respectful, and supportive work environment for all employees. Mm-hmm. But in this report, they had a bunch of different examples uh, of what these micro, you know, aggressions look like, and and really the really the result of lack of diversity in general seemed to be in, within the organization. Hmm. So, uh, 
I guess on the courage or cringe, um, where, where should we pick this one in terms of where to make the call? Yeah, I think the call is on them, on these employees basically coming out and making this claim. So is that courageous or is it cringeworthy? This one's right. a tough one for me, and, and I, I, I'm going to definitely look forward to, to hearing David's perspective on this. because. And David, you should know two things really quickly just to kind of set, because you've done a good job of setting the kind of framework, right, the intent and all that. My framework for this kind of stuff is that this is a continuum, right? So the idea of having the inside like the outside, which is a philosophical tenet that I believe in, is is recognizing that the inside is a lot of things. It doesn't just mean the people that you hire. It doesn't just mean the people that you cast in a show, but it's a process, right? So I start from that kind of framework. And in the entertainment world, step one is casting. Right. So we want to have the people in the show, at least to me, and feel free to disagree. Right. But for me, step one is casting. Make sure that the people who are in the shows are representative of your consumers. Step two, which seems to be what this main beef is about, is the inside of the organization making calls, shot calling, let's say, should also be representative of the country that you're in and your consumer base, irrespective of what they're talking about or working on. Right. And then the third part of it is making stories that are, in, in the case of content, or whatever the product could be in another industry, but making the product something that is rooted in a unique view of the world, but that plays for a larger audience, right? So kind of like something that works for everybody, but maybe has outsized impact for the particular communities. And, and again, there's probably step four, five, six, and seven beyond that, but it's a continuum. And the beef that I have about setting the, the dial too strongly on representation is it leads to this kind of stuff, where if the only thing we're trying to do is get make sure that when we're talking about somebody who's Latino, that there's a Latino in the room, or when we're talking about somebody that's black, there's a black person in the room, if that's our, if that's our sole driver, we're missing the opportunity to actually connect with other human beings and connect with an actual story that's insightful and interesting. And that's my fear about these kinds of things, Right. The, the, then the second major point in this, and then I'll, I'll give you kind of where I net out on this, is that I feel that some of this stuff is, you, you, you know, the, the expression could be made if I'm making a contrarian argument to, to the black employees, which I'm not. But if I were, you could say damned if you do, damned if you don't. Meaning, I thought we're not supposed, if I'm not black, I'm not supposed to opine on something without having a black perspective. I get you into the room to give you the black perspective, but now we're af- you're offended because I brought you into the room. And it, it's like on some level, we're kind of like, you know, we're, we're, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. Now, I think the solution to that, because I think both of those things could be true, that you shouldn't be making a decision without having the proper perspective in, in place, and that you shouldn't be just roped into a meeting that has no context and you don't even know my name. I think both of those things can be true. I think the solution to both is for people to actually take an interest in caring about humans and getting to know one another and less worrying about like what the boxes are to check in order to make all these decisions. And if we focus on relationships, the rest of it will kind of come more naturally than the way that the things are being approached right now. Because uh, right now I just feel this super hard bias to checking boxes. And I think that leads to situations like this that nobody's ever going to be happy in. So ultimately... You know, this one was a, a toss-up, but I came down on cringe for for those reasons. I think it reinforces 
a lot of a, a process and a system instead of relationships, which is what ultimately fixes these kind of issues. You have to actually take the time to care about other people, get to know them, and not be worried about what the rules are about who's got to be in what room, when, or why, because all that does is offend either side of the equation. That's where I'm at. It's cringe. Uh, <laughs> Thank th- you there's for the, so much to respond to that. Thank you for the summary. There's so much to respond to that. David, you want to go or want me to go? Um, I'd like for you to go, but before you do, I, I just want to get some clarification with respect to Charlie, we need a lot of verification from Charlie, by the way. Yeah, I'll Charlie, be brief. go ahead. You're okay. you're cringing at what specifically? Just so I um, I do this uh, the right I'm, way. I mean, I'm cringing. I had to come down on one decision or the other. I think it is it is more cringeworthy that these former employees or current employees made this claim than I do think it's courageous that they made this claim. Right, and and I guess yeah. I'm usually pretty good about understanding your logic. This one, I got to be honest, like I did not follow like more than half of it. All right. So I guess let's start with with that last point you just made, in which I'm not following the the logic, but the you know relationship versus what did you call it? representation versus relationships? Right, relationships as opposed to kind of checking boxes, right? Which as I feel everybody boxes, on all right. sides is trying to check a box. Right. Uh, but how does that negate the experience of the, or to your point, make the what these? Unless we don't believe what they're saying, but let's 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 mm-hmm. just pretend that what they're all saying is to a large, to some degree, trueish. Sure, trueish sure. with maybe some. You no, know, I think it's probably entirely true. With, I, and, with, and by the way, you know, I mean, but you're also getting a story, so it could be you okay. Know, yeah, but let's say mm-hmm. it's true. It's, it's on the true kind of group. How does that make their experience or their version of what happened cringeworthy? What's the concept that you just described about relationships mm-hmm. versus versus checking the box? Well, because for me, it's based on the fact that if we're saying that representation and being in the room is important, then when we're brought into the room, we're not happy with the circumstances leading to be brought in the room. Right. But but is right. So the, the challenge with that is when you look at the examples that you talk about, it's not just about being brought into the room, but being brought into the room a with no context with no role that you should be being brought into the room. Sure, what, frankly, what, what it reminds me of is like more where we would deal with companies that they want to get Latino perspective so they ask the assistant. Yeah, it's dealing Or the receptionist. So exactly the issue is not about point. having her or that person or having a relationship with that person, a personal mm-hmm. relationship. The problem is they don't have the right diversity within the groups that are making those decisions to begin with. Sure. Like that to me is the problem. It's not so much the problem that you're bringing this person out of context or that the executives in this one team don't have a good enough relationship with an assistant. The point that I'm trying to make is, more like is if that you're doing is like, let's, yeah. let's have a look. If you talk, yeah. we talk about a bunch of designers, mm-hmm. right? And you realize that all your designers are white mm-hmm. and you want to bring someone that is not white. And you're like, let's go find the Latino in the room. Who do we know? Oh yeah. The gender is Latino. Bring them in here. Sure. Hey, what do you think? Is this sure. racist? Yeah. Like, by the way, there's an example of that in my career when you'll, you'll David, maybe you had something similar, but like I, I've been in digital for a long time and I remember being brought in, being, having a meeting early in my AOL days and they brought like the, the guy who ran IT into the meeting. And I'm like, I'm trying to sell you advertising, but because it was digital, they brought the guy who was like, had a digital thing, had absolutely no relationship to what we were talking about. It's hilarious, But it's something similar to that. And and I agree. But in that example, right, like you bring in the janitor Mm -hmm. to give you feedback on on the creative. And the janitor turns around and says, you know what? Like, I feel like that's a terrible thing. Like, why am I being brought in to have to give the perspective? I understand. It's terrible. Where the... Real issue is not that a personal relationship with the janitor mm-hmm. because they can have a great relationship with, and they should. Nothing wrong with that. 
But that's not mm. the problem. The problem is that that group of executives that are in the room should be have better representation to begin with, and that's the issue that they, that they're that they're bringing up, not sort of <clears> the experience of this person that gets brought out of context. I mean, the, the example they're talking about flying people out to LA just to make sure that you sprinkle enough people of different colors. So that you give the perception that is diverse. That's my point. You're even li- though it's th- not. That's right. The point is that people are looking to check boxes. That's what's actually happening. Rather than taking the time to actually individually and uniquely connect with other human beings to understand who they are and their lived experience, they're more concerned about what the HR regulations are. And when you're when that's your compass, right. what the HR regulations are. It's going to lead to this kind of thing over and over and over again. Right. That's what I'm saying. But that checking the box is not by the by these employees who basically that checking the box is the people in the organization that are making decisions to not hire diverse people within the roles that would actually create diverse teams, but rather to your point, making it seem like that they 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 have some representation by bringing people that are not even part of the project. So that's the part where I don't follow your your logic as to why then that makes the comments of these individuals who were. Frankly, the, because the, the I think, victims of, of because of I think lack from what I actual management sure you know? because I think from what I read the emphasis on their complaints were similarly situated around process and number and not around people. That's why I think it's also cringeworthy. In other words, there seem to be more concerned about the the way that things happened and the number of people and the the circumstances around that than hey we have a culture that needs some fixing inside this organization it seemed that i've got my list of things that i'm supposed to do and you've got your list of things you're supposed to do and we're both focused on those and we're not seeing eye to eye as a result of the boxes that we're equally checking of course i see that the the power player the 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 Comedy Central in this case, if it is true that their internal ranks are not diverse, which, you know, we're taking at its word the story, then obviously they have the greater role in the in in fixing the issue. Right. But why why I don't think that this is courageous is because it doesn't combat the real issue. Combating the real issue would be we've got a culture problem. We want to fix it because we care about the other human beings, not this antagonistic checklisting and checkbox checking that basically says says until my boxes get checked I'm not happy and until your boxes get checked we're not happy there's no relationship there nobody cares and everybody's going to be walking around with a handbook trying to make things better and that just doesn't work to change a culture it doesn't it doesn't yeah so I so I'm the complete opposite on you in this one I think yeah well, that's I, no, I still that's I still no don't surprise. follow your logic at all on this one Charlie cuz I, I think if we if the if the courage or cringe is on the people and what they've said they're not the ones that would fix that problem that you that you're bringing up Right. It will be the people at the organizations making decisions, those VPs, those executives at Comedy Central that get to decide who they hire, who they know, who they train, who they basically promote, et cetera. And that is, in my mind, the big, the bigger problem. I have, I have one other we reason have, why I don't. We can yeah. have the issue that we don't we think that the, there's an underlying reason behind what these people are saying or that they don't care to actually have a relationship with the, their other sort of coworkers. I mean, for me, it's kind of hard to say that. Um, based it's not on, that they don't want to have a relationship. It's just that they're not prioritizing the relationship and the understanding of people's culture and background and experience. They're prioritizing an HR list. They're prioritizing a list of do's and don'ts. Right it, now, we've it, now we've added another component, which is I can never ask somebody who's black into a meeting on the spur of the moment for fear that they might be offended. That's what I'm talking about. The prior the 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 the, the emphasis becomes the things I should not do, can't do. But the but the problem in that Charlie mm-hmm. is that. 
if we if if all we're concerned with is the lack or the or the challenge that a, a non-black person is going to face and having to think twice of bringing a diverse person into that group, the way you fix that is is not by making them feel better about that. It's by ha- making sure that when you do have that group, it is diverse. Especially well, if you're talking about, of course. But right? go back to the but, but point go, number but, one, which is this is a continuum. On, this right. is a continuum. But going in and bringing on the janitor, bringing on the assistant, bringing on someone that has literally no content. You can walk it's down the street. Ho- it's horrible. And pull people from off the street and like, yeah. But, but that it doesn't make them wrong. The people that are being brought in, it makes the I, group who is not diverse I, to begin with I, wrong. I understand that, but the but the janitor is not is not actually one of the use cases that that are on that. In that case, it, I would it, agree with you. It, but it is in the sense that when you're bringing people in that are different role. Not part of the project, and be run simply to make it sure. look like it's that's diverse. really cringy. It is if the we same, were, if we were, example. if that's what we were doing, then you I could, would go, I would come down cringeworthy on that too. But but that's that's that, not what we're that's not what we're asking. But that's the example that was brought up and part of the issue that that they're, that they're bringing up. Right, but I'm saying that's not the question at hand. Is whether or not what Comedy Central did cringeworthy? That's not the, the question at hand. If it were, I would also say cringe. Right. My point is so, that. that in this case, we're looking at, at what the employees did, yeah. the former employees did. So let, let's hear David, because I think I'm, I'm really curious to hear David's perspective on this. Because I oh, think on so this one, we're, we're, yeah, this is actually one of, I think maybe one of the first time where I think we're seeing the same thing, but have a completely different sure. well, logic that ha- that of, happens. of what the, and I may not what be the ex- issue actually I is. I do have one other point, but I'm going to wait till David Okay, uh, goes. so I'm courage on this one, just in mm-hmm. case it wasn't obvious right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but David, so you heard us now... <laughs> argue this back and forth so i don't know if we, if we swayed you one way or the other but i'm really curious to hear your take we may have three different takes by the way which will be even, even more uh well, more that'd, entertaining. Be good. that'd be good yes i'm not although i've seen some shows seen some yeah, shows. yeah i saw yeah, i was okay. a huge so, fan of it yeah fan of it yeah so the the pilot of mad men probably one of the best pilots i i think has ever been shot <clears throat> there's one of the subplots was a female owner of a department store played by Maggie Siff comes in and she's Jewish. And Roger Sterling, <clears throat> played by John Slattery, grabs a Jewish kid from the mailroom and brings him into the meeting. And Don Draper walks into the meeting and greets the guy and says, nice to meet you. Assuming that that guy owns the department store, never in a million years imagining that the woman owns the department store. And doesn't have a clue that the guy actually works for his own company, right? Right. And that immediately triggered countless, countless meetings that I was asked to join, that my friends and colleagues have been asked to join over the years in Hollywood, where if you had an artist that was African-American or of a person of color they would reach out to someone who would be completely unqualified to be in that meeting and would ask that person to join as a sign of we have diversity here at the company. Right, right. And there, there really were two ways to look at it. There's the, well, at least I got to be, you know, I, I initially was um, – uh, annoyed by the fact that I was asked to, and I, I won't, I won't name who the the talent was, but I was initially like, "Oh, I'm getting, I'm being in, a, uh, being given an opportunity to speak," and I was admonished for voicing my opinion. Ironically, hmm. I walked out of there, and they were like, "No, no, you're supposed to be there, but you're not supposed to talk." And I was like, "Well, the talent specifically asked me the question." 
because they saw me as the only person that could relate to what it was that was their concern as to whether or not they were going to join the agency. And that also happened with, like I said, multiple friends of mine who went through the experience of not knowing anything about the particular subject matter, but being asked to join because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for me to, to hear about this group of Comedy Central um, employees making this um, you know, statement, I, I think it's got to start somewhere. I think it has to start with a conversation and, and in, a, in a way, you know, um, like I said, I was just told to just sit there and shut up. And, and maybe not in that direct of a way, right? Like nobody, they didn't use those ex- specific words. But that was, um, the, I thought assumption. It was really, the assumption, yeah. yeah. I thought it was really interesting that the article st- said um, for the BET executives, uh, the executive about Kobe Bryant's passing and the, the, B, the executive who said, a Comedy Central executive who said, why the F would we do that? Isn't that BET's job? And then the response um, I, I found to be really particularly telling with respect to um, not, not refuting the statement, not saying that's absolutely untrue. I categorically deny that that's what was said. You know, the statement, the statement was, that's not what happened. That, that's not what happened. That's not what, that's not exactly what happened. Right. That's not, right. that's not, not what, exactly. what I said as, sta- <laughs> as stated. I love that. I love that. Right. That yeah. qualification yeah. of as stated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sure. I'm not saying verbatim. I don't have it, you know, a rec- an actual recording of it, but the general principle was a joke or in, in your mind, by the way, um, not a very funny one. But a, a statement that whether it was sarcasm or whatever it was, it was, you know, certainly inappropriate. And so um, I, I have to say that um, I, I always think about like empathy versus sympathy. The, the fact that someone had the courage to make the statement and to bring to light something that I promise you. And again, I, I know you guys have dealt with this and. You know, have probably you know either done it, uh, faced it, or sure. had no sure. people that have faced it where you're brought into a situation as a result of that. Um, I I actually think about there there the, there's always a moment of courage that you know you have to have in order to speak up and and stand up for what's right, and um, you know that's something that. Um, I, I think it's, it's absolutely necessary, and, and I'll be really honest. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I don't know that that we were prepared. I wasn't prepared at the time, or or even kind of qualified at the time to to push back mm-hmm. and to you know. I have colleagues that or friends that I know were you know were that was top of mind for them, and so they would either refuse to be in the meeting. Or, you know, make sure that their voice was heard. And, and again, I felt like at the time that wasn't something that that was going to that was going to harm me more than just kind of sitting there and appreciating the fact that I could be in a signing meeting and know what are the different things that need to be said at a signing meeting. Sure. Sure. Right. And eventually that's going to contribute to me becoming an agent because each of these people in this room are going to recognize Oh, okay. He know he does know the right thing to say, right? And maybe I shouldn't have said something in that first meeting because, um, frankly, the agency wasn't qualified. You know, to um, it, it was something that was more of a 
a detriment to the agency because the agency hadn't thought about that in the past. But I, I will say that as I was thinking about this one, um, <clears throat> I came across a quote by um, W.E.B. Dubois or Du Bois, depending Bois. on where you're yeah. from, Bois. you know, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, where he said, either the United States will destroy ignorance or ignorance will destroy the United States. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the foundation of this country has always been based on the principle of, of free, the, the principles of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, right? The opportunity to be able to express who we are and, you know, uh, 200 plus years later, you know, again, maybe it's just I'm biased having grown up in the Bronx, but that's where hip hop came from as a form of expression to be able to talk about diversity mm-hmm. and, and hip hop has become worldwide in a way that I, none of us ever would have imagined. But at the end of the day, it was about the courage to speak up and to share your opinion and express how it is that something makes you feel. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've explained before on this show too, David, that, I've, that I view racism in a number of different categories. And one of them is this kind of um, racism, which is really insidious, that does the kind of examples that we read in this um, Comedy Central piece of, you know, making assumptions that you belong in a particular lane, but only leaving you there and not looking at you in terms of the fullness of what you as a person can bring to the table, even outside of what your particular background or uh, industry or experience have been, right? But just looking at you as kind of filling a need at that particular moment. I've experienced that more in my work in Silicon Valley than any kind of overt racism where I literally got into fistfights as a kid when I was growing up in, in Florida, right? So, which I've done both. But, but that kind of racism to me has always been more insidious because it's an almost invisible and you can't, you can't look at it. I'm not saying that it's not courageous that these people, that the employees raise the argument. What I believe in their, the, the solution that's being proposed is what gives me the cringeworthy piece because I believe the solution will, or the proposed solution will not lead to the kind of culture change that needs to happen inside that company. That's what they're, what they seem to be saying is like, you guys need to get your internal house in order and we're not going to be satisfied until all these different boxes get checked. And I think that that's fine, but that's step one in a continuum that maybe you're not even going to get or understand if that's the only thing you focus on. And I think it just leads us to more of these kind of conversations about like, you know, these kind of boxes that get checked or unchecked, which I keep coming back to. But I definitely have been in that situation myself, been called into those meetings, you know, for various reasons, especially working in Hispanic media as long as I did. Um... I just don't, I, what I don't like, I guess, and what makes me come down on cringe on this is the fact that I don't believe that the solution of not, you know, the solution that is apart from actually trying to build relationship and change a culture is what's going to actually solve it. And I feel like the emphasis is on a series of sort of processes or steps. Maybe that's what I, maybe I overread that in the articles, but that's, that's kind of what I came away with. And I just don't think that that's how you change cultures or change behavior by making people feel like now I got to walk in these particular, you know, buckets, I guess. Maybe I'm not still not explaining it, but go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I think the it's funny because that I, I didn't part of my and part of the reason why I asked <clears throat> the initial question after you spoke was because I, I didn't really, to be honest, I didn't really feel like there was a succinct solution there. Mm-hmm. But I do think mm-hmm. what you're keying, on, keying in on is very interesting with respect to um, messaging. And mm. 
messaging is so important, not just with respect to communication and the importance of communication, but also helping understand someone else's perspective, right? And and again, you know, if we think back to like the, um, frankly, the most obvious, you know, um, um, uh, conflict with respect to the messaging behind Black Lives Matter, where that's about messaging, you know? Mm-hmm. The, like, I don't think there's, on one side, nobody's saying that police... Um, lives don't matter. And on the other side, nobody's saying, you know, absolutely the police should, you know, not receive any funding, right? But the messaging ultimately comes down to how do we better install programs that allow for education to take place so that we can each understand um, what the other person is seeing with respect to their experience and how that experience has informed um, what it is that they feel is a particular injustice. And when someone, sure. when we actually take the time to do that, then we realize, oh, wow, you know, that, that actually does ring true for the most part. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and in, and in the in the article, I think to Dave's point, at least I didn't, I also didn't see a lot about the solve, right? Mm-hmm. It was more about just the need to increase the diversity internally. But I think to your point, Charlie, depending on the approach that they take, um, you know, it could be a very short-sighted approach that doesn't actually create the kind of change that they're looking to create uh, or something that is much more sort of longer lasting. And, and there you also do a lot of things that maybe we talked about in the past. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting, right? To me, it's still like this is part of the, the reason why we, we really like doing these kind of topics because in some of these, it's not just sort of seeing the same eye to eye, but some of these topics have so many layers to them that it's so easy to also look at it from a slightly different lens, a different perspective, um, which which we love to be able to uh, to debate. Yeah, my, 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 just to close this out, David, and close out our show, um, my sort of one of the key things that I'm always on is people not losing their personal agency in the process of all of these discussions. Because I think if people abandon the the right that they have to share their perspectives and points of view, that doesn't lead to more light and understanding and coming together. I think that leads to people in some cases pretending or again trying to check boxes but not really changing fundamentally their behavior. And that's at the end of the day, I want people to be able to retain their agency, the Comedy Central employees in this case, as well as anybody who's inside that organization currently to be able to say like, hey, this is what I think could actually fix this. I don't, my, my fear would be people feeling like there's nothing, I can't say I can't say something because walking I don't on have, eggshells kind walking of thing. on eggshells. Yeah, I don't have permission to like say anything because I feel that all that does is keep people in their bunkers and doesn't yeah. bring them back to engage. That, I guess. That's, a, that's a really fair point. I mean, that's I think, yeah, we definitely don't want to encourage that because, frankly, I think the part that you want to have people is to be open enough and be vulnerable, to be vulnerable enough to be able to ask the question and have a conversation. True. It's only through that conversation there's clarity. But I do think if that question comes with a general, like a genuine interest to want to really know the answer and it's not to, to your point, check yes. the box completely, right? And I think people can sense that right away. Like say, hey, by the way, like I know, for example, Charlie and I are, you know, many times we'll talk about religion and I have a lot of questions about religion. So, but when I'm asking him, it's like, he knows I'm asking not to like pick on him or to like, oh, here's a gotcha moment. It's not that. It's right. like, I'm generally actually interested in wanting to know. And I think- it and always, that and it that shows in how you yeah. ask it too, and how you ask the question, right? And yeah. also willing to listen to the answer, right? Uh, even if you agree or disagree, like having that openness to actually want to have the conversation. So, I think more of that, frankly, just results in a better, better environment, um, whether it's Comedy Central or, or anywhere else. Absolutely, David. Any uh, any kind of uh, 
last summary or words you want to share and tell people in any case how to get in touch with you, how to follow what you're doing with Click. I mean, give us kind of that, uh, the PSA. Sure. Um, uh, we're available in the Apple, uh, in the App Store and the Play Store. It's uh, Click, C-L-C-K, um, C-L-C-K TV.com. Um, for us, Click is, uh, there's no I in Click. <laughs> is uh is our, <laughs> it, I like that. Nice. Cool. Is our is our That's slogan? Cool. You know, we we believe that um it, it's important to build a, a a to cultivate a community of content creators of color. It's a lot of C's, but um you know it ultimately comes down to you know a lot of what we've talked about today with respect to you know content creators want to tell their stories and have the ability to tell those stories and um be able to show another perspective. You know, and and be able to show this is what the this is what the experience comes down to, and unfortunately, you know, um, not enough people read, and so the consumption of media, whether it's again those stereotypes that you know they got on a Disney ride, um, or however they're they come across one tweet but don't actually look through the actual you know dig a little bit deeper in order to check the source. Um, what you said, Jesus, about um, uh, you know how there's going to be bias and how people were, were questioning even the, you know, AOC's tweet, uh, you know, someone suggested whether that was sarcastic, you know, like, no, there's very literal. And by the way, if anybody saw her, you know, IG live last night, that was really, really powerful um, to check out. So thank you very much for having me. And um, to the content creators that are listening, keep creating. Amen. Well, thanks for like joining. Thanks for joining us, man. It was really a great privilege to see you next time. we got to do it in the studio. You know, once this pandemic is uh, behind us and we can all be kind of together, but um, really appreciate you bringing your perspective, all the great things that you've done, your voice to this conversation. That's really huge. And uh, congrats on all the great work that you're now doing and building. And, you know, we hope uh, for all the greatest and all the the success to continue to come your way. Very kind of you guys. I appreciate it. And and again, you know, the um, I, I believe that um, you know, we didn't, we didn't meet until, you know, a couple of years ago, but, um, it's, it's been a privilege to get to know the both of you. And, uh, now that we do know each other, I'm glad that we're going to be able to build together. Awesome. Loving it. All right, brother. Thanks, David. And if you, uh, if you out there listening, have any thoughts or questions or concerns, or want to let us know how we're doing, want to, uh, give us a courage or cringe, uh, topic, go ahead and make those comments and reach out to us. You can always contact us directly on blackbrown.us, but, um, keep listening and keep giving us your feedback and we'll see you again next time on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word, tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.